It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you could also be listening anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. Follow the directions. You could be listening 24-7, seven days a week uh, on any device of your choice. Uh, so please, if someone is outside of our area and you think they would enjoy our programming or like to hear some of our interviews, please let them know that they can do so anywhere across the country. Okay, I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show today, and it's a pleasure to have them here with me. They're from the Anishinaabe Health Foundation, Andre Morso and Sherry Brandt. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I have to tell you, I've known Andre for quite a long time, uh, but I, we were deciding just off the air before we started, had we actually spoken on the air uh, before? Because Andre is uh, a, an old hat at the radio industry. He's been around uh, and done a number of different things in the industry. And let me tell you a little bit about him. So first of all, he's the chair of the board for the Anishinaabe Health uh, Foundation, and he's also the communications manager for the Ontario Natives Women's Association. And uh, so we've had him on the show once before, and he's also helped us with uh, setting up a couple of other interviews, and we appreciate that, Andre. So, But Andre is Ojibwe, and he is an advocate and ambassador for Indigenous arts, culture, public affairs. He's a member of the Fort Williams First Nation in Thunder Bay, as a lot of people seem to be around here. And uh, he's uh, based in Toronto, but over the past 15 years, he has served on uh, numerous boards of directors, including Ontario Arts Council, as well as the Imaginative Film Festival. And his list goes on and on, but he's also gained a reputation for promoting and supporting Indigenous arts and public affairs. He's a former host, as I mentioned, of the uh, Aboriginal Voices Radio and Urban Native at CIUT University in Toronto. And for the fast past five years, he has worked at the Secretariat of the National Aboriginal Achievement Foundation, uh, which was NAF now called Inspire. And uh, I could go on, but we only have so much time, and I still have to get to Sherry. So, <laughs> 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 so let me vo- move on and tell you a little bit about Sherry. And Sherry is interesting story because it links right back to the Aboriginal uh, Health Foundation as a client, but right now uh, she has uh, she's the vice chair of the board, and also she's a member of the Mohawks Bay of Quinte, the Tyndanaga area. Yes. Been up there. I, I worked up there for a little bit, uh, and um, she uh, also has family on Wikwimikon. Oh, Manitoulin Island! I love Manitoulin Island so much. You're you, you know it's so nice to to have uh, that link uh, for you. Uh, But she was called to the bar in 2003, and she established a commercial real estate, renewable energy, and Aboriginal law practice that provides strategic counsel to several First Nations and industry clients seeking to develop projects with First Nations and to understand and address Aboriginal rights and interests. And she has been been busy with that. And she also completed the first 100% First Nation-owned wind power project in Ontario. So congratulations to that. Thank you. But, you know, Sherry, the other thing that's really interesting about this is that uh, you were, you started, you know, you were a, a client. I was, yes, and, yes. And, you know, you were, so you know the programming right from, right from when you were a teenager. I do, yeah. So I was uh, born in Toronto, and yeah, my family uh, from uh, outside the city. And, and so when I was growing up in my teens, 
um, you know, I needed a, I needed an outlet. I was searching for an understanding of my culture and my background, and it was so great to be able to, you know, go up to the island every holiday and, and have that access to my grandma and my and my family. But I found that just at that time, I needed I needed more. I needed to understand my background, and that's and so I sought out Anishinaabe Health Toronto, and that's actually uh, thirty years ago mm. now. Mm. So I've been a client uh, from that time early on, and then at different moments in my life, I still go back to resource the organization. What was it about the programming that that you found helped you, or or you know helped link you to to your your culture? Yeah. So for me, uh, you know, my real attraction with Anishinaabe Health first was on the on the spiritual health side, mm. right? So connecting with my culture, um, you know, Anishinaabe Health is such an incredible place because we blend. Uh, Western medicine and traditional medicine together. So you could go down to Anishinaabe Health, look on a board and see a workshop, a class that would be, you know, for um, uh, to experience a, a weekend doing uh, traditional fasting on the, my Haudenosaunee side. I could go and and do another ceremony and learn about my Ojibwe side. There was just literally so many outlets that uh, that really helped me. Mm, nice to hear. Yeah. And nice to hear that it, that it helped give you that link to your culture as well. Uh, as you say, that's going back some 30 years now. Yeah. And you've <laughs> moved on. You've, you've become a lawyer. You have this practice. And, of course, what you did, which is, is lovely and it's so nice to see, especially around this time of year that we hear about this, at least sharing the story, is that you decided to give back. I did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the opportunity came up and... And uh, for me, again, like being born in the city, my, my um, uh, you know, the opportunity to be a part of something so tangible as this new building for Anishinaabe Health Toronto, mm-hmm. this is going to be an incredible opportunity to bring all of our services under one roof. Um, we're making history right now, you know, we by, by having the support of so many people from so many different mm. backgrounds, you know, getting on board and, and seeing our vision and wanting to help us succeed. And for myself, um, a, a bit of the reason for the donation had a lot to do with, with uh, my upbringing. My father uh, also worked in the city and was involved in public housing he was the original president for Wigwaman Incorporated mm. and had worked there for 25 years to create all these great homes and, and assist uh, urban Indigenous people in the city of Toronto. So what better a way to memorialize, you know, my father with the next significant building that's going to be in this city? And and that is one of the things we're here to talk about is this uh, this new building that's going to be now. Uh, I understand ground hasn't been broken yet. You're in the f- in this process of fundraising. Uh, I believe more than half of the uh, I believe ten million dollars is needed for this building has been raised so far. Yeah. Um, and we're at six point five million dollars at this point. That's great. Thanks to the generous donations of Indigenous people <laughs> and leadership like Cherie. Mm. And uh, a community across mm. the city uh, in many different uh, areas, not just Indigenous, that are giving mm. and see the value in bringing traditional medicine and, you know, conventional Western medicine yeah. together yeah. to create a great space where Indigenous people in Toronto can feel at home. Right. So can you explain a little bit more about this idea? What, what's, what's the building? Where is it, where's it going to be located? It is located on the uh, Pan Am Games 
Athletic Village site. Mm. And Cherie, what is the, the, do we know? Gosh, well, we're right down on Cherry Street. That's so it, right. if you'll see, there's a beautiful new YMCA building there. It's an incredible community hub. Anishinaabe Health Toronto is going to be right beside that building with an equally incredible nice. architecture, um, you know, traditional Native architecture uh, uh, reminiscent as well. So, Well, that brings us to the next, uh, the next as you just talked about, the architecture and Indigenous-inspired, uh, I'm sure. Uh, ha- ha- has that already been established in terms of who the architects will be involved? What, kind of, what will the structure look like? Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. Yes. So we have two row, two row architects. Oh yeah. Who are from Six, Six Nations? Nation, yeah. yeah. So I mean, you just sort of see all these elements coming together, and it's so exciting. But to for for the project to retain two row to to do all the visioning and and come up with the design for the building, it's an incredible facade of a star blanket. It's got all this movement. There's going to be, uh, you know, just a recognition. You'll instantly be able to see our culture looking at that building. Great. And, you know, and uh, to speak to that as well, it's just, it's so wonderful to see that Indigenous people are taking real ownership of this, Mm. raising the money, Mm. designing the building, Mm -hmm. you know, planning the the programming and Mm -hmm. all the great stuff that's going to come of this, you know, and being welcomed in that neighborhood as well. Oh, yeah. The neighborhood. It's a new, it's like a new Toronto down there. All Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, Corktown has really uh, welcomed us with such open arms. Like we actually just this week um, found out that uh, Corktown's raised like something like over thirty thousand dollars within the community mm. for our project, and like that's just that's incredible. So we have uh, a lot to be grateful for. Now yeah. on that on that topic, in case anyone is out there going. Yeah, I want to donate now. Now you get me excited about this. What can people do? Where can they go to donate? Yeah, so we have a website. People can go to www.supportanishnabe.ca. Okay. And uh, yeah, you can find us there. And there, there's opportunities to become, uh, to make a donation. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that I also like to talk about is people can make um, you know, a weekly contribution, mm. a, a monthly contribution, sure. something really small, right. but it just, it all helps. Right. And, you know, only 1% of charitable donations are given to Indigenous causes. Mm. And that is really something when you think about it. Mm-hmm. However, we have a large, diverse group of donors, uh, interfaith groups, religious mm-hmm. and spiritual organizations, including the Sanatan Mandir Cultural Center, the Toronto Conference of the United Church of Canada, the Toronto Diocese of uh, the Anglican Church of Canada. I mean, that's, it reaches out. Family Foundations, uh, the um, John C. and Sally Horsfall Eaton Foundation, who are matching donor contributions to the capital project dollar for dollar up to $300,000. And I think we've already reached that goal. We just met that. that. We just met that. So we really are. And community groups as well, such as the Corktown uh, Toronto and um, Gardner Museum's Empty Bowls, which Mm. has been sensational. And Toronto Neutralia Lions Club and Verity Executive Women's Club's Circle on Truth and Reconciliation. So... I think in order to make a dream come true, you really have to have buy-in mm. from not only our own community, sure, but the greater and larger community. Well, of course, because it is all interconnected. Uh, and it's part of the Toronto uh, community. So 
So why why would it not uh, encompass all of those? Well, people? I would I would say, well, why not? But then I would look to only one percent of charitable donations mm-hmm. uh, are given to indigenous causes. So I think by having us here today to speak to this, mm-hmm. we uh, we want Canadians, we want everyone to know that that's the a minuscule amount, and we need to build on that, you know, for many causes. Yeah, and I should add, there was also another strategic element to uh, my donation as well. Mm-hmm. So Anishinaabe Health Foundation uh, joined with the Trust Collective, mm-hmm. uh, which is through the Toronto uh, Foundation. And they came up with a target. They wanted to get 100 women to each donate $100,000 to uh, a whole set of different incredible charitable giving opportunities. And they're bringing together those hundred women, and and so for myself, that was also part of the strategic decision because then we can get the Anishinaabe Health Foundation on the radar to all these other incredible donors, to all the other incredible outlets through the Toronto uh, Community Foundation. Great. Yeah. Now, Andre, is uh, we mentioned the website? We talked about uh, donating. Uh, go to Anishinaabe.ca. I believe. Support and, Anishinaabe. Okay. And uh, the other thing is, though, I, I'm wondering about if people are interested in seeing what the building look like. looks like. Are there other pictures or images that people can, can see online? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and I would take a look because yeah. it is, as Cherie was saying, it's the most beautiful piece. It's a piece of art. Mm-hmm. It's a welcoming piece of right. art. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I do believe that what's going on down in that part of the city is that they're also... Uh, looking to uh, build other uh, Indigenous organizations uh, around uh, the hub as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a, an exciting, exciting time. Uh, sorry, I'm just yeah. going to let everyone know that they're listening to uh, Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guests are Andre Morisot and uh, Sherry Brandt. And uh, they're here talking about uh, the Anishinaabe Health Foundation and the new building that is going up and the fundraising that is going on, as we was mentioned at the top of the show, uh, they've uh, currently raised uh, $6.5 Five. Uh, million dollars towards that goal of $10 million. And uh, Sherry actually made a generous donation herself uh, after uh, 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 being someone that was able to give back after being someone that was actually someone that took advantage of the programming when she was much younger. And um, Andre, you know, I, I would like to ask you something. You know, from our introduction and, and, and the things that you have been involved with over the years, you sit on a number of boards. You've been very active in the community in so many different ways. You could choose to get involved anywhere. You know, you could sit on any number of boards. Why, did, why was it important for you to, to sit on this board? What, what made it attractive to you? Well, I have lived uh, on Gerard Street for over 33 years, mm. and it's like I call it Indian Road because you've got Misway Beak, then you've got Anishinaabe Health Toronto, then you have uh, Native Women's Resource Center, and then you have my house. <laughs> and I have I have lived there for sixteen years in that one house, mm. which is right in between these uh, these mm. extraordinary organizations, mm. and. Uh, my dear friend and uh, our, one of uh, our board members, Diane Gray, she and I worked together at the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business for a number of years. And she approached me a few years ago and said, Andre, would you be interested in coming on this board? And I had listened to her talk about 
what was going on, what was being planned. And it really struck me that this is my neighborhood. Mm. You know, this is. Uh, so I thought, this is a wonderful, wonderful project. And to see it come to life is to see this building rise up. Mm. And it will be the future for our Indigenous people in Toronto. And it will be a catalyst for non-Indigenous people to learn more and understand the power and the strength of Indigenous culture. Mm. And helping, that is an honour. Mm. Uh, how large of a building will this be once it's completed? Like, do we have square footage? Yeah, so it is, it's a significant building, mm-hmm. right? So right now, Anishinaabe Health Toronto has its services in three different locations. And so you can, you can imagine uh, the need mm-hmm. to bring that all under one roof right. and, and the opportunity to create a community with such a significant offering. But, you know, the building's, the, the project budget is $32 million for this building. So it is significant. Mm-hmm. It's going to give us an opportunity to bring uh, all sorts of programs under one roof. We've got a, like over 60 different programs mm. uh, dealing with, um, you know, primary care and and into all the t- types of ambulatory care that, that individuals need on a day-to-day basis. And then moving into the cultural cultural um, and spiritual care as well. Like I, li- I like to mm. look at it all from a holistic perspective. We'll yeah. be able to offer right. all of that under one roof. Yeah. And I can just imagine, uh, as you say, you've got these things currently operating in three different areas, uh, the availability to have them all in one area. Um, You guys sit on the board. I'm sure that that's going to uh, alleviate uh, a lot of headaches and a lot of concerns for uh, some of the workers that are there. Uh, I'm sure you guys hear about this on a, you know, when you have your your monthly meetings or whatever about the operations, how it's going, and this will make things more streamlined. Totally. Yeah, and something to clarify. So we're on the foundation board. So okay. we were strictly put together. The foundation's only been up and running for the last three years. Okay. And the Anishinaabe Health Toronto has its own board and okay. uh, some um, some other great friends of ours as well. Uh, Marion Jacko is is the chair of the board at Anishinaabe Health Toronto. So they okay. oversee that day to day. Those day to day challenges, okay. and and we're there to try to be the. The uh, the saviors and <laughs> find and find these find these dollars. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, uh, you know, we 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 could we'd be very remiss if we didn't speak to and acknowledge the extraordinary leadership of uh, Joe Hester. Mm. And this has been his dream. He is the man who has has been championing this since the very beginning. And I mean, he has been with uh, Anishinaabe Health Toronto for many, many years. Oh, yeah. So this is, I, 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 for lack of a better word, I would say that this is a legacy of his work and his commitment to our community. Yeah, Joe Joe Hester uh, really deserves a lot of credit in this for yeah. sure. And I remember, uh, and I guess I'll say I'll never forget something that Joe said, which was, you know, at Anishinaabe Health Toronto, we've never been given the chance to dream there's always been the focus when you're when you're an organization, you have to work within tight budgets and and within uh, within the service um, dollars that you're provided with. Mm. And he said that the Anishinaabe Health Foundation is giving Anishinaabe Health Toronto the opportunity to dream. And so it really it really stuck with me. Well, you know that's an interesting comment to make. I would say that there are probably a lot of Indigenous people in general that have not had that opportunity. 
to dream just because of the uh, the legacy of that Canada has perpetrated upon our indigenous people. So it's nice to hear true. that. Nice Very true. That. And you know, I just want to point out something that is sort of part of the dream is, you know, there will be sweat lodge and mm. ceremonial grounds and related facilities at the heart of this new facility. So, you know, that spiritual grounding will be something that will bring people in and allow them to dream because uh, I think that the, the culture and the, you know, the tradition is the foundation of, of dreaming. If you guys uh, had one ask of the listeners out there, what would it be in terms of contributing to this? What, what would you say to them as to why, why they should reach in their pocket and donate to, to, for this cause? I would say that this is uh, a generational opportunity to be a part of change, to be a part of, uh, of an awakening where people don't judge Indigenous people because of the challenges that have been foisted upon them since colonization. Be a part of the change that will help them to grow, to heal, to prosper, to take their rightful place in the city of Toronto. Yeah, and for me, I mean, I've always looked at the project as a real opportunity to share our knowledge, to share our medicines, to share our teachings with the broader public, with the community. And so, um, you know, if, if people are trying to think about how how, you know, why, why give, why be a part of this? I would say, you know, Anishinaabe Health Toronto is opening up its doors to everyone. This is not just going to be a facility for Indigenous people. We want an exchange of information to happen. We want an exchange of knowledge to happen. And so I would say to people to look at it as a place where you could also come and learn more about our healings, about our teachings and and that is all intended to further the process of reconciliation. And I think a lot of people are are understanding the the benefits of that. And I was just going to ask you about uh, if you thought that the truth and reconciliation uh, recommendations have have helped in some way to uh, to to gain that openness from non-indigenous people to uh, see the importance of of the indigenous culture and. Uh, much like the Anishinaabe Health Foundation and and uh, Anishinaabe Health Toronto, I would say definitely, because the recommendations, uh, there was a lot of work that went into those. Oh yeah, there was a lot of uh, of pain and expression that went into that, and it was a huge process. And uh, you know, Senator Murray Sinclair. Mm. Just last fall at the Verity Club, he was a special guest and helped to raise extraordinary dollars for this very cause. So if we can say Senator Murray Sinclair in the same (laughs) sentence as reconciliation, then that's a definite positive. Would you say that that once uh, this building is completed, uh, that it it might be an example for uh, others to look to? Uh, to establish in their own communities and other cities? Oh, for sure. And I think that's actually already happening, which is so right. exciting. So you've got the design community that's that's that that that's paying particular attention to this building. Mm-hmm. You have the municipal and, and local government communities that are paying particular attention to this building. People are watching 
the work that the City of Toronto is doing and that we're doing through the foundation and the organization. And you sort of see all these planning elements coming together and achieving a holistic outcome. Like this is really the model for, for something to be um to be continued in into other areas and and uh, but uh, but I think we're not the only project. There's there's other examples across the country course, as well. Totally. Yeah. But you know, uh, I just wanted to say that the Anishinaabe Health Foundation, which Sheree and I are a part of, once we reach our capital uh, mm-hmm. project, ten million dollars, the foundation doesn't stop its work. We move on. We continue to dream as right. a foundation well into the future because right. we've got other other ideas and other plans as well. Can you share any of those possibilities or ideas that you have uh, mm-hmm. looking into the future? Uh, no, I'm just okay. I'm being very no worries. Flowery. Yeah. But. No worries. Um but um having said that, why don't we uh, let people know again about where they can go to donate and you know, is there other ways they can help? Is there other things they can do with within what you are doing? that people can can be, become a part of or, or help. Yeah, for sure. So back again to the website. Mm-hmm. So it's www.supportanishnabe.ca. Right. And, and uh, you can see lots of stories about the organization through that website. But I guess I would also say to listeners, um, you know, think about what you do within your own business and what, you, what your what what you offer as a as a person and and the company that that you may work with or that uh, that uh, the work that you do right there's all sorts of things that this building is going to need mm-hmm. in order to to be complete so right exactly <laughs> Andre any other uh, closing <laughs> comments uh, uh, I just want to say uh, that it's a, a real pleasure to be here today David and thank you very much for this opportunity to uh, allow us to share this wonderful dream. And I guess I'll just add that if people are going to make uh, a sizable contribution, that uh, you are a reg- it's a registered charity, so people would get uh, a, a tax receipt for that, if I'm not mistaken. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and just to tell you a little bit more, as we're closing out here about the Anishinaabe Health Foundation and uh, Anishinaabe Health uh, uh, Toronto, the, their vision is health in healthy Indigenous people contributing to sustainable urban communities. And the mission is to inspire philanthropy as well. That's, uh, you don't often, I don't think, see that necessarily. So to, so to support and, uh, an environment where the urban Aboriginal community can heal spiritually, physically, emotionally, and mentally by enhancing capital and program funding for Anishinaabe Health Toronto and to foster uh, the reclam- reclamation, preservation, research, and application of traditional healing methods, including the sharing of these with all people. Nicely said. I would like to thank uh, my guests for coming into the show today and being a part of it. I'm so happy that we were able to bring uh, this to uh, to the air and get people, hopefully, to uh, this, especially around this time of year. Uh, it's a, a season for giving and giving back and uh, thinking of others. Um, so... Um, I want to thank uh, Andre Morso and uh, Shari Brandt for coming in and sharing uh, this about the Anishinaabe Health Foundation and uh, Anishinaabe Health uh, Toronto and the new building. Is there an end date? Is there a date when for completion? Well, I know that we're putting the shovel in the ground in July of 2020. Great. Well, then that's not that far away. So let's please uh, look to have you guys back and talk about that 
uh, as we get closer to those dates. Yeah, no, that would be great. It's been really wonderful to speak with you about this. It's yeah. been a pleasure having you Miigwech. both here. Imigwech. But don't go away. We're going to come right back here on Element FM and Moment of Truth with more right after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, don't forget, you can also listen to us online uh, through our website at elmntfm.ca and uh, also through the uh, Radio Player Canada app. If you uh, download the app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM, uh, you could be listening on your device of choice uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And if someone is outside of our listening area, you think they might enjoy our programming, then please let them know that they can do that as well. And uh, just some, one other thing to let you know, if you've missed one of our previous interviews here on Moment of Truth, uh, you can also catch that on SoundCloud. We all upload those uh, recordings at a later date so people can go back and listen at their leisure if they happen to miss it. And of course, that goes to anyone outside of our, our listening area as well. I'd like to welcome my next guest uh, to the show. Uh, he's someone I have known for uh, quite a long time, lost touch with, uh, but he's always been uh, someone in the music industry. I played with Mike years ago in a band, uh, but even then he was involved with a music store. And uh, he's now the owner of Mike's Music on Danforth Avenue in Toronto. And he's celebrating, I believe, a very important uh, year for him in the industry. And uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, David. How are you? I'm great. All right. So you've been in the retail end of the business for 50 years? 50 years. This is my 51st Christmas in record retail. I can't believe I'm saying wow. that. Yes. Wow. That's that's great. Now, of course, your store, uh, Mike's Music, is is known for its particular interest in vinyl. And you've got a lot of vinyl in that store. I do have a lot of vinyl. Um, I also sell CDs. I've of been course. one of the the last holdouts that still sell CDs, which I think is still a really valid, you know, f- form of music. Uh, but yeah, I've got a lot of great vinyl for sure. Now, what what uh, what what makes vinyl so interesting to you because there's a resurgence of vinyl going on right there's lots of people are turning back to vinyl now. for sure and a lot of people who've never listened to anything beyond an mp3 on uh, earbuds before right are discovering that music when it's played in a proper medium is pretty amazing so yeah so it's a combination of uh, people who gave all their vinyl away you know mm. 30 or 40 years ago and mm. wanted back again and sure. people are just discovering how good it sounds um yeah it's 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 pretty exciting now, you just said something I thought was interesting, and if you don't mind explaining it a little more. You said people are discovering when music sa- what it sounds like on a proper medium. Now, and I'm sure you're referring to vinyl. Now, what for you makes that medium so much more exciting to listen to uh, music of, of a person's choice on, uh, in, in that particular format? Well, I'm actually not 100% vinyl zealot like okay. a lot of my contemporaries. <laughs> yeah. Um, my theory, uh, you know, previously being a record producer and a mm. recording artist and stuff like mm-hmm. that, um, analog likes analog, digital likes digital. So if you're listening to a Led Zeppelin record that was recorded purely analog on tape mm. with analog equipment and tube microphones, mm. it sounds way better on an analog medium, which is vinyl. If you're listening to something that was recorded in the last 25 years and was recorded digitally, it sounds better on CD. And, uh... To me, uh, the experience when you listen to Exile on Main Street on CD, 
my personal experience over the last 20 years or so has been, this is a way overrated record. You know, <laughs> Let It Bleed was way better. Why do people always say this is the best Stones record? Right. Then when I throw it on on vinyl, I'm like, holy crap. Okay, you totally get it because all of a sudden all that sloppiness and, and uh, bad recording and quality and everything like that gets crunched down and becomes just one loud mass coming at you like like an assault. Right. And it's like, yes, this is why this record is rated this highly. Mm. But on CD, it doesn't cut it. Mm. And the same happens the other way. If you're listening to something that was recorded digitally, you're listening to it on vinyl, basically all you're hearing is a CD with some surface noise in the background. There's a distraction, which is why a lot of people like classical music better on mm. CD. Mm. So. Now, uh, having said that, though, um, what's the resurgence then about? If, if I, I think the resurgence is, is partly... Um, Partly started by younger people, mm-hmm. and uh, I hate to say it, but part of it was by hipsters <laughs> who were finding records in uh, in uh, junk shops and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, second hands or goodwills and places like that, mm-hmm. and finding ironic album covers with you know weird pictures and you know crazy music and stuff like that, and uh, having it on their coffee table, maybe not even having a turntable yet. Mm-hmm. Eventually finding a turntable in a Goodwill and playing it going, hey, this sounds pretty cool. Mm. Um, it's spread from there into people who basically, you know, would sit down in somebody's house when they said, oh, I'm going to play a record. Oh, really? Okay, why? You know, I've got my, I've got 40,000 songs on my iPod. I don't mm. need to hear a record with six, mm. you know. Uh, and then when it came on through a proper stereo system, people were like, oh, wow, this sounds so amazing. And it's a, such a high contrast between... You know, the MP3 takeover, which to me was the most degenerative form of music ever, you know, Mm. I thought we were sort of heading in the future towards, you know, moving sidewalks and personal jetpacks. I didn't realize we were (laughs) going back to sound that sounded worse than cassettes. Mm. Um, And and the contrast was so dramatic that people were just like, okay, you know, those old people who were excited (laughs) about music are probably not as crazy as I thought they were because this is really, you know, a visceral, you know, stimulating, incredible physical experience, you know? Mm. So, yeah, I think, uh, and, and then, of course, it just spreads because then it becomes hip and cool and everybody yeah. wants to get on the bandwagon. Uh, but the results are there. I mean, when you listen to a good recording through a proper medium at a proper volume, you know, it's uh, it does all kinds of things to your body and your brain and your emotional quality that, that just doesn't happen when you're hearing something on a bad system with little hit earbuds. You know, when you say that, though, there's another aspect of this. You know, as you mentioned, uh, people can download, people are using MP3s. There's no handling of any physical items doing that. Yes. And that's another side of this, isn't it? But it's also the care of those items because handling an LP and taking care of it is, is vitally important. It is, it is. And that's a, lo- a, a large reason why CD technology took over when it did. Mm. Uh, not because it necessarily sounded so much better than, than vinyl at the time. Uh, I remember being called a Luddite back then by, by friends of mine, all most of whom were vice presidents of different record labels, mm. when I said, you know, this is, doesn't sound that great compared to, to mm. vinyl back mm. in, in the day. Mm. And it didn't initially. The, mm. the EQ was done extreme right. uh, top end to try and make it sound special and sparkly, and it just ended up sounding thin and harsh and gave you right. a headache. Um, but I remember sitting down with them and saying, okay, we had a little record appreciation society. And I said, okay, here's Sergeant Pepper on a CD, played it through my system. It was like, awesome. This is incredible. Okay. 
Here's my Japanese pressing of Sergeant Pepper that's pristine mint on my Thorns turntable with my Stanton cartridge in the same volume level. And they all just sat there with their mouths open going, mm. okay, you're not a Luddite. You're totally right. This is, And I said, yeah, that my point is it sounds better. The average person has a scratched up Canadian pressing of, of Sergeant Pepper with a crappy turntable, a crappy cartridge, and it sounds like garbage. They put a CD in. It sounds absolutely clean and perfect mm. every time they play it unless right. they – step on it. And, um, yeah, and it just, it took over. So definitely caring for vinyl, you know, if you can keep it in in good condition, not put fingerprints all over it, uh, keep it clean and, uh, make sure that your needle's in good shape. So it's not grinding a new pathway through the grooves. Um, yeah, it's going to last for a really long time and sound amazing. Yeah. Mike, having said that, you know, uh, with the resurgence of, of uh, vinyl, uh, in, on, in music, uh, what what do you see in your store in terms of gifting those kind of things? Are people turning to vinyl as a, as a nice gift for people to receive? Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And, uh, yeah, at Christmas time, and it doesn't matter, new or used. Mm. Used is, unfor- well, I shouldn't say unfortunate, but used is generally better because we're working with original pressings from original mm-hmm. master tapes right. as opposed to new reissue vinyl, which right. in most cases is done from a CD master. So it's basically taking a digital source because right. they've lost the original mm. analog tapes years and years ago or they're too hard to access right. or they're, they're damaged. And so, you know, like a, a, a new Beatle record, mm. unfortunately all the Beatle stereo records are, are, are done from a CD master. Mm. It's in a file somewhere and mm. then they're pressed from that rather mm. than from the analog tape. So it basically sounds like a CD with some surface noise, right. which was my original point. But if you can find the original pressing yeah. in good condition, yes. all of a sudden it just opens up like crazy and it's just, uh, yeah, no, extreme difference. Now you just, you just mentioned something else in terms of giving, gifting, because uh, do you only, only have new vinyl in your store? Or do you have u- used uh, uh, material? Like I that? have primarily vintage used vinyl. Uh, I, I do have some new vinyl. I don't uh, specialize in it. I can order it for people, right. but I've, I've got too much good vintage vinyl to, to no, waste my time. And that's that. where I wanted to go with this. I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, as you just pointed out, uh, the pressing is different. It's from the, the original analogs and the tapes. And also, uh, there's value in that stuff. Oh, sure. There's always collectible value for sure. Yeah, yeah. Especially, especially with rarity, you know. Mm. Um, a, a lot of things that have become popular in the last, uh, 30 years weren't popular when they first came out. Something like, uh, the first Velvet Underground album mm. sold nothing. Mm. Nobody cared. Everybody's right. like, what's this crap? Right. You know, I remember hearing it going, wow, these guys really don't understand psychedelic music and they can't play their instruments very well. What's going on? And what's this song heroin? This is way too scary, you know? Right. Um, and then of course, 20 years later, you listen to it again and go, this was pretty cool. I mean, it doesn't matter how well they played their instruments. Conceptually, this was different than everything else. Mm. It's It's got a great quality of spookiness. And uh, yeah, and it sounds, but too late at that point because mm. the vinyl was gone, sure. you know? Sure. And uh, so something like that, a, a lot of records, you know, the first Stooges record, the second Stooges record was mm. one of the greatest records ever recorded. Mm. Bad reviews in Rolling Stone magazine who disparaged anything that, you know, wasn't exactly their type of music and uh, never sold, got their record contract canceled and, uh, you know, become something really valuable later on because it only sold maybe 20 or 30,000 copies as opposed to 20 or 30 million copies like mm. Michael Jackson's Thriller or something right. like that, you know? Right, right. Uh, now, Mike, the other thing that... Uh 
that that you, you just uh, mentioned about this material, and and I'm wondering because the, not only is there a resurgence for people looking for it, but artists, young younger artists, are, are getting their stuff pressed in onto vinyl as well for the younger younger audience. Right. And uh, again, going back to gifts uh, and those kind of things uh, that people might be looking for, um, you're you're saying you primarily have vintage. Um, uh, um, material that 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 is in your store, but you also carry CDs and and those kind of things, so people can find that stuff. But the other thing that people will get if they go to uh, your store is exactly the kind of conversation we're having right now, yeah. because of the <laughs> because of the information and that history that you have over that time period that people uh, won't find in uh, in other places that they can and and it it would give them an education as well as great conversation. Yeah, well, it's it's a, it's an old record store tradition that <laughs> people hang around record stores and talk about music and argue about music and discover new music and turn other people onto music. Yeah. And that's been going on since, you know, the early days of Sam, the record man. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, I used to hang out in record stores trying to get jobs back you right. know, when I was 15 and 16, right. you know, and, uh, um, probably two thirds of the people I've hired over the last 50 years have been people who've hung around my store long enough. It's like, <laughs> you should just work here. <laughs> you know? uh, but yeah, but there's nothing like talking about music. And, you know, I think Frank Zappa in his, all his cleverness and one of my greatest idols once said, uh, uh, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. And that's a really funny line, but it's also stupid because you can talk about music for an infinite amount of time and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you can describe your feelings, you can describe instrumentation, mm. arrangements, mm. production, album cover art. You can just, you know, there's all kinds yeah. of things yeah. that can be discussed verbally that right. don't have to be, you know, right. discussed orally. You know, having said that, you just brought up that point about the album and talking about the album cover and, and discussing that, the physical uh, piece that you could hold and talk and look at. Um, how, what, what, what has changed for you over that time? You know, obviously we know that we know the technology has changed. We know how those things have changed. The approach to music, you know, from you, not only from your, your experience as uh, someone in retail, but also as someone that worked in the industry as a musician and a producer, um, what what's what do you see as sort of the you know that change? Do you, has, some, has anything been lost in that time period, or what do you see as different? I think some things have been lost and some things have been gained. I mean, mm. it's always changing, and you know, I have friends my age who you know. Uh, lost touch with what's going on musically who will mm. argue at a party that there hasn't been any good music since mm. 1975. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's not true. <laughs> no, no, really, there's nothing, nothing. And I said, well, there's been 20 albums that came out in the last month that are great, right. you know, but you just don't have access to mm. them. You don't know how to find them. Um, and also you've drawn a line. You've said, mm. I've got enough, you know, mm. so your brain gets to the point where it's like, it's too full. Right. You know, I don't want any more. <laughs> and I love what I have already. So you, you stop, you know, right. right. but, um, as I say, you know, back in the days when they were loving music, there was lots of terrible music being made back then too. And there was lots of great music. They remember the great music, right. you know, right. they don't remember disco duck. You know, they don't remember the horrible <laughs> things that were coming out at the time. And the same is true now. Now mm. you have all this crap with people with their stupid auto-tune toy, mm. you know, and there's mm. like, this, you know, you listen to, I think Chum FM is one of the stations. It sounds like almost every tune they play has a vocal with an auto-tune on it. Mm. It's a dopey gimmick that was used as a joke on Cher because she couldn't sing in tune. And she went, oh, that's cool. Let's keep that. And it became a huge hit. <laughs> 
And you understand why that happens, you <laughs> right, know, because right. it was novel. Sure. It's just like when like Peter Frampton else. used the talk box. Right, that right. was really cool. Do you feel like we do? You know, and that was like a really cool idea. But you can only bring that out once every five or ten years. You, mm. you don't do like every song from that point on with the talk box. But this thing is somehow stuck like right. a disease, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but at the same time, there are a million people – Billy Gibbons on his latest record uses the auto tune just for weird effects, just to, mm. just to be goofy and stuff like that. Right. I don't think it works that well, but I give him credit for actually trying to do something with it that's that's different from the norm, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, there's and and there are people going back to uh, old styles of music. There's a lot of really good new psychedelic music, which mm. is one of my favorite forms. Mm. You know, having played in psychedelic bands mm. and progressive rock bands. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of new progressive rock bands coming out and combinations of the two, mm. you know, a uh, band called Tool, which has been around oh, yeah. for quite a while, you know, yeah. evolving from basically pure metal into, you know, into metal prog. And their latest record is pretty much a, a ambient, uh, mm. you know, uh, prog record, which is fantastic, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah, a combination of, of elements and, um, and using the technology as well. Yeah. Now you can get a a much more perfect performance yes. uh, without having to beat it to death. Right. Um, I, I like to think one of my favorite records of all time was the first Paul Butterfield Blues Band record, which changed music forever because all of a sudden you just saw what could be done. It was a mixture of white and black musicians and they were doing blues rock with extraordinary musicianship. Uh, that just blew everybody out of the water up until then. Everybody thought Keith Richards was the greatest guitar player on the mm. planet. And then Mike Bloomfield came along and was like eons beyond that. And everybody's like, Oh my God, this is incredible. Right. And the, you know, everybody knew on the street that that record, that record was done live off the floor. Mm. You know, those takes were purely live with no overdubs and mm. stuff. And it's like, wow, these guys are great. Well, reading a biography of Michael Bloomfield, you know, 50 years later, it's like, yeah, it was recorded live off the floor. Some of those songs took 60 or 70 takes, right. but it was recorded live off the floor. Yeah. You don't have to do that anymore. Right. Now you can actually fix things. You can do five or 10 takes and yeah. then you can scroll around, yep. you know, and, 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 you know, pull this note out of here and put yeah. it in there and pull this, yep. you know, create a, a rhythm track that's all solid all the way through and stuff. And, and that's good because it can be stifling actually just, you know, beating yourself to death, trying to do something perfectly all the way through. Mm. You can lose the feel sometimes that way. Mm. It's bad in that people with absolutely no talent could just, you know, drag this keyboard solo here from the internet and drag yeah. this drum beat over yeah, here yeah. And, and put a couple of bleeps on top of it and stuff and go, here, I'm an artist, you know, and, and, <laughs> and make a bazillion dollars too, yes. you know, way more than the guy who actually practiced guitar 16 yeah. hours a day for 20 years, you know. Very true. Yeah. Very true. That's the other side of this, I guess, right? Uh, for sure. And there's always two sides, for sure. Uh, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM, and uh, this is a Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Mike Waite. He is the owner of Mike's Music in Toronto on Danforth, 105 Danforth Avenue, to be precise. And uh, now, Mike, your store is a little bit different in terms of also that you're you're sort of a, a guy that's uh, uh, off-grid to some degree, yeah, you know? Um, you don't have a, a big, huge website to, to access things on. You, you, sh you know, you've got no. a little present. <laughs> I've got a little website that one of my customers built for me years ago because he wanted me to stay in business and he was a, a web guy. <laughs> but it's, it, it hasn't been, I've never even looked at it. It hasn't been upgraded in a million years. And, you know, there's probably just all kinds of trolls posting stupid stuff on it. But, but I do have a, a really great guy, um, uh, Trevor, who actually does an um, um, Instagram 
account for me who mm. was uh, same thing good customer wants me to stay in business right and he's really really good at it and we post stuff like every week that i'm putting out and and do a few little the vignettes and talks and stuff like that so yeah, yeah. yeah and that's great but that's yeah. that's that's it as far as me and social yeah. media go and, and i like i don't even know how to access that i just do the flipping through the records that i pick out and, right. and talk about things once in a while so yeah yeah and I think that's a real charming side of of what you do as well, and probably uh, probably helps uh, uh, create that uh, that who you are. That's part of who you are for sure. I guess, yeah. Eludate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now you know the other side of what you've done. We've talked a lot about music, but you, as you say, you you uh, worked. F- and hung around record stores trying to get uh, work that way, but you also worked in the industry. You worked with some some pretty impressive people and produced some 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 interesting people as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, my first band was a uh, uh, my first good band was a psychedelic band in the '60s called the Tour. Um, we uh, well, th- this will be a long, longish story, but basically, <laughs> yeah, uh, we were. You know, huge fans of the Kensington Market and other mm. Toronto psychedelic bands in Yorkville and stuff. Uh, we developed a pretty good psychedelic light show for our band, and uh, the the band eventually split up. We were just about to get a residency in uh, in, in Greenwich Village, which would have been amazing. And our uh, lead singer decided that he would rather spend the summer at his girlfriend's cottage than do that. Mm. And that was just so ridiculous that we the band split up. Mm. Our light show. Hang, hung together and uh, got a job working at the rock pile. Mm. Basically we went to the first gig of the rock pile and uh, they had hired a, a fancy ass uh, uh, second light show from uh, San Francisco. And they went, our light show that we put together in Mike's mom's basement is better than this. And they went back and talked to uh, John Brower afterwards and, and told him, and he said, we'll come down next week and, and work for free and we'll see how that works. So they were the <laughs> resident light show. They used to let me in the back door for all the shows, like the Zeppelin shows and Jeff Beck shows oh, and yeah. Helen Wolf shows and wow. stuff. And sitting up in the light show booth, which was the front of the balcony, was a great place to, mm. to view, although you could walk right up to the front of the stage and watch Jimmy Page play guitar because there's only 200 people there on the first mm. time they played. Um, and uh, so we hung out together and all the other guys in the light show were musicians. One mm. of them was the original drummer from my psychedelic band. And then uh, Nash the Slash was a guy at the time not known as Nash the Slash right. who was a photographer for an underground newspaper I think it was called Tribal Village and he used to be in the light show all the time because it's a great place to take pictures of bands and stuff we all became friends uh, his best friend was uh, was a writer for that same magazine Patrick Cutney and uh, and uh, eventually we decided just to get together and start jamming because it had been six months since any of us had played mm. and there was a drummer um I was a bass player, uh, Nash played violin and blues harmonica, and a uh, uh, couple of guitar players and one of the other guitar players on the tour. So we got together and just started jamming weekly. Then we started writing material, and that turned into a band called Breathless. Mm. And uh, we achieved a fair amount of notoriety. We played a lot of original material, um, focused partially on... Um, uh, uh, a large concept suite that I had written called Brother Limbo's Last Stand Against the Universe, which was supposed to be an electric comic book. We were, you know, mm. planning that the record would come out and there'd mm. be a comic book inside it. Mm. We had uh, a couple of really good comic artists that were fanatic <laughs> followers of the band mm. who were doing up uh, sketches of what the comic would look like. Um, we had quite a bit of success. We were really stupid. 
Um, we destroyed a lot of dressing rooms. We <laughs> left the path of destruction <laughs> behind us. We were dopey kids. Um, record companies who wanted to sign us, we made ridiculous demands. Mm. And um, basically, nothing came of it. Mm. Um, after a few years, the, the band did split up. I kept it going as long as I could. Nash mm. went and started a band called FM. Mm. And uh, which was a great band. They mm. actually got a record contract yeah. and um, uh, did a, a great record called Black Noise, one of the best Canadian prog records of all time, if not the best. And Rolling Stone voted, I think, the 42nd greatest prog record of all time worldwide. Really? Uh, wow. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, and I started a band called Eyes mm. at the same time, which you were a member of. <laughs> and, um, and so we went on a different path. Um, Eventually, uh, I ended up doing a, a solo album. I, mm. I had a little recording studio for a while, partners mm. with uh, Glenn Johansson, who was amazing producer, musician, mm. uh, songwriter, singer. Uh, he's now in Barbados. He went to Barbados to run Eddie Grant's recording studio mm. for him, and he's got his own studio down there now. And uh, doing a lot of demos, and then I ended up uh, getting a record deal with A&M Records, put out a solo album. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, Nash heard the record and said, hey, I love your record. We should do something together again because we haven't worked together. He was solo at this point. So uh, I ended up uh, producing a record for him and playing on it. The consequence of that was that the record company said he's got a tour and doing the one-man band thing with the tape loops mm-hmm. and stuff is not good mm-hmm. enough. He should put a band together. The other guys from FM were at loose ends mm-hmm. having broken up and not having gigs. I said, why don't we get those guys back together? So we... Got Cam and Marty, and uh, they backed up Nash for the tour. The record company heard them. They were doing some FM material, and it's like, if you can talk these guys doing into doing a record for us, I'll let you produce it. I'm like, yeah, I'm up for that. So, so we ended up doing a couple of records with FM. Yeah, and uh, yeah, got got it. They they wanted to 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 do hits. They wanted to be more commercial. They didn't want to be an obscure prog rock band because we're talking the '80s. Yeah. Prog rock was virtually yeah. illegal at that point. And um, uh, as was long hair, but that didn't deter me. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, so yeah. And so they wanted to actually not be obscure. They wanted to get some hits. Right. Right. Um, we co-wrote a song, Cam and I co-wrote a song called Just Like You, which went to, I think, number 12 on the chump chart and was a, a hit across the country. It was mm. pretty exciting. Mm. And uh, we did some videos. I produced some videos for them. And mm. uh, um, yeah, and it was a great experience. It was really great working with them for that period of time. Now you've been fairly quiet in that front, but I understand from when I was talking to you in your store that you're you're looking to get back into doing some recording and stuff. I ended up in a situation where, when the record industry started taking a nosedive, I could no longer afford to spend that much time away from my my store, mm. and, uh, and I had to basically, uh, you know, I had to cut back on staff because I mm. was, you know, sure. not making money right. and work there myself. So I basically got away from performance right. and and playing music for a number of years, just as a matter of survival to keep my store going. I actually took a part-time job at the post office. You know, I, I, I did everything I could. I cashed mm. in RSPs. I cashed mm. in my post office pension. I borrowed wow. money from everybody I could uh, just to keep the store going for a period of time when mm. most stores went out of business wow. just because I'm a maniac. Mm. And, um, yeah, and, and uh, one of my friends who was in Breathless and was also in the tour, uh, liver transplant surgeon of international note, uh, never stopped playing guitar and kept bugging me saying we should do something. He had a band with all transplant surgeons. They were playing gigs every <laughs> once in a while called the Marginal Donors. And, and they were really good. Uh, uh, and I just kept saying I don't have any time because, mm. you know, at that time I was 
I was right. working like 14, 16 hours a day. Sure. Tried to run an antiques shop out of my basement as well and uh. you know, doing whatever I could just to survive, to keep the record yeah. store going. Uh, so eventually I, I succumbed and said, yeah, I want to start playing again. It's, yeah. I started accumulating instruments. I thought that was the next frontier for the store was to actually sell used guitars. Mm. And people would every once in a while come in and say, I've, I've got these CDs I want to sell, but you buy guitars. And I'm like... Right. I'm buying antiques, but not guitars. Mm. But what do you got? Oh, it's a Les Paul. Oh, that's cool. You know. Mm. Mm. So the next thing you know, I thought, well, I know more about guitars than I know about antiques. Mm. You know. Mm. So I started accumulating those. Mm. Then I started thinking, if I'm going to sell guitars, I better be able to play guitar since mm. I was a bass player. Mm. You know, played some keyboards and mm-hmm. guitar. Mm-hmm. So I started obsessively practicing guitar a few hours every day, and then realized that I loved the guitars, didn't want to sell them, and that I wanted to play guitar in a band. So. <laughs> Paul and I have been playing together for a few years now, yeah. uh, doing psychedelic blues rock. Oh, nice. And uh, got, yeah, got a bunch of uh, original tunes that I've been writing, and uh, I have a friend with a great recording studio who's offered us some free time, so we're we're going to make a record probably within the next year. Nice. So, yeah, there you go. That's great. <laughs> uh, Mike, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and, and it's been great having you in the studio to hear about uh, everything that's happened to you. And, and, you know, it's great that you've been able to keep store open all this time and become a part of uh you know that that danforth scene it's it's wonderful yeah well thanks man thank you very much it's it's nice nice that somebody notices that <laughs> it hasn't been an easy job and it's still not an easy job to keep it going but you know it's been something that i've wanted to do so and uh if you want to find out more about mike and uh, see more about that that history uh of of mike there is a story online about him uh and the 50 years that he has been around in the music industry so you're you're welcome to look that up online and and find out more about that go to mike's music store also uh to find out more as i say he's at 105 danforth avenue and um you have limited hours also for store opening Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, generally closed on Mondays, although I'm right. open this Monday because yes. it's just before Christmas. Right. And um, uh, the rest of the week, during the week, I'm open from 12 till 7, uh, Tuesday to Friday, uh, Saturday from uh, 11 till 6, and Sunday from 12 to 5. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I also just wanted to mention, David, yeah. that um, uh, Trevor's uh, Instagram that yep. he does for us is, yep. is Mike's Music T.O. Okay. If people want to look at that, you yep. know, you can see a lot of stuff that we're putting out. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. Thanks for mentioning that, Mike, and thanks yeah. for coming in. It's been a pleasure yeah. speaking with you. Thanks, man. Sorry. Right. A little bit long-winded, but that's what editing was invented for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, uh, I see Andrew's got a bit of a smile on his face because he's going to have to do a little bit of editing. But yeah. hey, uh, thanks for listening to the show. You're listening to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Until next time, I say onigiha. <laughs>